This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatane by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well indeed. Today I have to write some assessment reports. On That's exciting. Uh, one Master's one and one Bachelor of Leadership for Change one. And it is a, while it's not a pleasure to actually write the thing, it is a very much a pleasure to listen to the work that people have been doing and how much that learning has transformed their lives. That is always a beautiful thing. It is. It is an awesome thing that to be involved in, isn't it? And who are we introducing today? It is my great pleasure to introduce Derek uh, Winmoth. Uh, Derek is a father, a grandfather, a career educator across this uh, across the entirety of education, um, and founder of Future Makers. Derek, it is a wonderful pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, kia ora, kia ora. Great to be here. Kia ora, Derek. Where are you, Derek? Well, I'm in uh, Tawakairangi, Lower Hut, at the moment. It's where I live and uh, and work from. And we're asking people how their bubble life was. And, of course, that's now gotten complicated with more than one bubble life. But we'll go back. How was, your, how was bubble life last year? Well, bubble life for me was probably the, the most busy time I've had in probably the last decade or so. My, my background includes um, a professional kind of interest in distance education. I've been very heavily in that. And so suddenly um, people were taking a real interest in, oh, what's all of this distance, online, remote learning all about? Uh, so I was busy as. Last week we talked to a teacher from Trident High School, Tui McCall, Mawera reminds me of the name, um, and she talked about how it was an opportunity to, to not just put stuff online, but to actually change education and, and to, to, to make progress in, in that way. Are you seeing that played out? more widely I, I definitely i think um that i'm seeing there's quite a spectrum of response uh the i think it, it's always difficult to kind of over categorize but there were three main categories of response that i've seen and um, one was kind of a a sheer panic almost and and taken by surprise um and most often the response there was Kind of, oh, we've we've got to give the kids something to do and a delivery mindset. And across that, you know, there was everything from just piling heaps of stuff online for kids to do through to some schools who had their kids turning up on the hour, every hour, in the uniforms to sit and listen. So there were experiences of that, um, but I think we're move, we're seeing a move away from that. 
then, of course, there was another group where the, the major and overriding thing was actually that learning was the last thing they were thinking about. It was the care and the support um, and the concern around the social, emotional well-being of not just the kids, but parents, whānau, communities. And I think that was perhaps one of the, the biggest eye-openers in education was the extent to which schools insulate and hide us from a lot of what's happening in the real lived experience of a lot of our students. So I think that's good experience. And then, of course, uh, like the, the teacher that you're talking about from Trident, the, the realisation that actually if, if learners are going to be able to uh, learn effectively in remote location or in locations other than in the classroom, then it um, the traditional ways that we've thought about uh, teaching and learning, which are often rooted in very transmissive kind of ideas, transmissive pedagogies, that they aren't sufficient. And, and actually it becomes a real surprise to see the extent to which students are able to take responsibility for their own learning and with the right skills and the right insights can actually pursue that in, in greater depth and, and greater, more meaning and relevance to themselves. Mm. Did you get good response when you were saying that sort of thing to the schools that were phoning up saying, help us get online? And you were saying, well, okay, let's not think about it just getting online. Let's think about changing it. Were they open to that? Uh, oh, look, I think at the time of the the first lockdown, uh, I mean, our lockdown was punctuated by the, the school break. Um, so, in fact, we didn't really get a um, a role at it here in New Zealand. And I think there was it was you know a great deal of uncertainty. But I certainly had in the overseas examples that I was working where they were facing a much longer period. We we got down and dirty and and did some pretty interesting stuff uh, there. But in the New Zealand context, I'm, I'm now seeing schools starting to really um, uh, put their minds to this. And in fact, in the, in the lead up to Christmas with, with some pr principals thinking seriously about next year, I've had some approaches just in the last week saying, hey, um, this, we don't want our staff and our parents and our kids to be caught by surprise when, when it's in, almost inevitable we're going to have more periods of, of closure and so forth next year. How can we make this? A more uh, part of the new normal, if you like, and and I'm I'm really encouraged by that. I think it's a really positive move. Did you see evidence of that new normal sticking beyond the first lockdown? Did did you see when people came back to classes uh, some sort of change? In in isolated pockets, absolutely. Uh, some, and I guess perhaps it's because of the nature of the work I do and the people who tend to, to approach me, but some really exciting sorts of things where people are saying, ah, we notice our students doing this and this way. Let, how can we bring that back into the classroom? And um, I think it does. It opens up an exciting new horizon. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Link. Uh, let's have the Mana Atua. Why Link? I, I went to a live performance of these guys and um, they just blew me away. I love the passion. They, um, I, I really kind of find myself drawn to a lot of uh, uh, music in the row uh, and the, um, the, the, the expression that's given to that. And um, I, I admire their Christian faith. It's great. Me he fuck up in tight and make your way to Kuarki. 
almost everyone who comes onto the show has been asked a, uh, this, this question, and it is with all of the barriers that are between our kids and the future, and those barriers, I see them as like a wall and, and made of blocks and a block called climate change and a block called biodiversity loss and one called COVID and one called the future of work, and there's just all these, this big wall. How do we help our kids to navigate the wall to get to where they want to go? Well, that's a man, what a rich question that is. It's one I ask myself every day, really. <laughs> um, but I think there are, there are really, I think we need to go back and say, what, what's the, how do we create a new narrative around schools and education? I mean, it's it's become almost trite, a, a cliched thing, but it is the truth. Our schooling system, our, our whole approach to education is built around a post-industrial thing. You know, classrooms, age group cohorts, all of these sort of things are representative of preparing kids for work in a factory. And despite all the efforts to change pedagogical practice, we're still bound by legislation sort of frameworks and other things that reinforce that as the basis. So we have to we have to think about a new narrative, and and that starts with thinking what is the purpose of education, um, and then the next part of that is so what are the roles that people play in that, and that's where the concept of learner agency emerges for me as really pivotal in this, and it's something that I've written and spoken and and worked a lot about throughout the last fifteen years because I think a consequence of that industrialized view of the classroom and the school and the subjects and all this thing is a, a view of education that is, despite our best attempts to argue otherwise, very transmissive in nature. It's about you know, shifting the, the reality of truth as we have defined it from you know, the, the teacher, the adult, to the child. And those blocks that you've just described, they represent conundrums for society and, and that have never really been before presented in human history in the way that they are now. There is no solution. You cannot go and read a textbook on how to solve climate change. You can't read a textbook on how to solve the issues around cultural and sexual identity as it's being um, brought to the fore now. And so what we need to do is find new ways of tapping into the, the intelligence that exists in the whole of the community and bringing that together in a knowledge constructive way, a knowledge building curriculum. And, and I think, uh, I guess a little, a little thought that goes through my mind all the time is that, you know, education isn't simply about preparing our kids for their future, but it's actually about building a new future. And if we're just about preparing our kids for the future, we drop back into the industrial mindset. We drop back into thinking, we've got the answers now, we just need to give our kids the, the amount of knowledge and experience and develop the skills to do that. But we'll fall short. We've been falling short for the last several decades, and that, that falling short is just increasing. We talked to some quite inspirational teachers from Liger Institute that's setting up in oh, yeah. Queenstown, Queenstown. A, an entirely project-based school and, and self-determined and, and all those sorts of things. And one of the things that was quite exciting for me is that they've been operating in their kind of startup mode as a, a, essentially a Friday school. Um, but next year they become um, the real, the, a, a real school for, for um, all days. But what, what would it take to get that kind of thing that you're talking about or that Liger is trying into the mainstream? Is, is it too much of a, 
is it too much of a transformation for schools to bear? Uh, well, it's proven to be that um, uh, in lots of ways. Uh, and, and often what happens, I think there are two big problems that happen. One is uh, people who get excited about these transformations and these changes uh, get locked into short-term horizons uh, rather than really long-term horizons. And I think that's something that we've lost a lot, particularly in our neoliberal political kind of context. We, we don't tend to think long. You know, that seven-generational thinking that is spoken about in a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of context, you know, where we actually think, what's this going to, ha what's the impact here? Not just for my grandkids, but their kids and their kids type of thing. And so we get frustrated when we don't meet the economic returns on an investment in a new school program in a year's time or whatever, right? And I think the other one is we, we underestimate just the extent to which we are trapped in our mental models by what exists. We, we long, as a human society, we long for the stable state as Donald Sean talks about it, that, that time in existence where we just get back to normal. And we're seeing that at the moment, right? And Sean in his book, Beyond the Stable State, describes brilliantly that sort of human condition where we, we kind of, we, we want to do something different and we, we say we enjoy change, but actually we just, we look forward to that time where we don't have the pressure. And I think the, uh, and, and often we're constrained by what we know. Uh, and it, so it does take a particular type of person and a particular type of leadership to get us to that new place. As someone said to me the other day, they were quoting someone who's, who, who I can't uh, remember who it was who said it initially, but it was, you can't fix a covered, uh, sorry, you can't fix a covered wagon to get to the moon, you know? And I think that's, that's where we're trapped. So, you know, the, the likes of the Liger Institute, the likes of... Um, big picture school, there's a, there's a whole range of these things. I think we need to be celebrating the success of these um, initiatives, but we need to be harnessing the positivity out of that with a long-term view, a long, uh, uh, where it's going to be, not just in five or even 10 years, but where, where would this lead us in the next 100 years? Yeah, and, and when you start talking like that, most people's eyes glaze over and they go, well, I'll be dead at the end anyway. You know? but I look at it this way, I might be, but my grandkids won't be, you know, and their kids will be coming on the scene, et cetera, you know, big pictures here. You're talking about that that stable state that we yearn for, that um, – that 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 you know, and, and we hear that so often with with people insisting that the government come up with dates and of, of which things are going to happen, which we know are totally unrealistic because there's a global pandemic going on. How do we educate people for that that uncertainty, for being comfortable in the ambiguity, for embracing change, those kinds of things? Well, there's there's a lot a lot written about this at the moment, and and I think we're the challenge for us is how we how we embrace it, but. I think um, for me, leadership's critical in here. So I'm, I'm struggling to think of a response because there's such a breadth of response to your question. <laughs> I'm focused on leadership because that's really the big thing, right? You mentioned that people look to government um, and we're seeing the very best and the very worst of that being expressed at the moment. We, we're seeing on one hand people who are acknowledging and realising that we've got uh, a leadership in place at the moment that, that is giving confidence and giving a sense of 
purpose and sense of response to the situation, but in other people's eyes, we're seeing the most vindictive and um, kind of, you know, worst expressions of, of a personalised character assassination happening. And you think, this is the same government, the same people, how can we have these sort of perspectives? And I think, for me, it's important to understand and realise the difference in leadership that's required. And in saying this, it's not just about the leadership at the top of government level, but it's leadership at every single level all the way down. And if we think about, there are three kind of broad responses here, if you think uh, about this. I mean, we've got the, the leadership style, which is the one that comes out of the back to normal, the one that lacks imagination, the one that says, look, we'll just get past this and then we'll get here. So these these measures, these steps, these changes that were taking place, we'll just handle them. But, you know, by, by May next year, I predict we'll be okay. All right? And we're seeing manifestations of that sort of leadership, total lack of imagination, so valid. Then, then we've got the leaders who step into the fray, say, just follow me, believe in me, we'll get there. You know, the leader is a saviour, kind of, they, they want to do that. And often what happens then is that when things start to go wrong, we get into the blame game because it's not my fault, it's someone else's. If only you'd listened to me, we would have done it right. Or if only I had those resources and that money, we would have been able to. And how much of that are we seeing at the moment? In fact, I believe that that, that form of leadership is what has actually been encouraged to a large degree by our current kind of education milieu, but there's an, there's an argument for another day. Um, and then we've got the leaders who I see emerging now. The, we, these are the ones that I love to work with, who are who are themselves learners themselves, who who facilitate and empower and, and empathise, and they 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 work to create an atmosphere of safety uh, for people to be who they are and to explore that. And they are ready to step in when needed, but they're also ready to empower others to to take that. Now, that all sounds very grandiose. But there are examples of that happening around the place. And so just as we can no longer afford to carry on the industrialised view of schooling, where we are transmissive in nature, we can no longer stand forms of leadership which tend to stand out the front and say, believe me, I know everything. So back to, to the point of your question, how that would go, if we're thinking about schools um, such as um, what's happening in Queenstown, Big Picture, these other ones, one of the things I'm working on a project with Michael Fullen at the moment, which is looking at a, a, a transformative education approach across several nations in the world. We just had a big conference recently. And there are, there are four dimensions to how that is working. We're seeing some outstanding things occurring, just like in some of these others. But we're looking at it as a system level thing. So the first is actually focusing on changes in pedagogical practice to really make explicit what our pedagogical practices are and understanding there's no right one. You know, we see people jumping from bandwagons. They go from project-based learning to inquiry learning to, you know, back to basics learning, all sort of stuff. But actually under, going right back to the real roots of pedagogical practice and at the heart of that is the concept of learner agency, right, and how we, we believe it. The second dimension that we work on is the concept of partnerships understanding that actually schools are just one part of a much broader ecosystem at work here and that if we're really going to work we have to bring on board the, the teachers, parents, whānau, businesses, local communities, local councils, we have to understand that the entire ecosystem is contributing 
to this. And so finding those ways in a, in a way that isn't just a tokenistic, let's bring someone into the classroom is really important. Third one is um, the learning environments. And of course, COVID has really helped to accelerate that. But understanding that the classroom, again, is just one place in which learning happens. And there, it's not a very good place for a lot of learning, you know, single desk, single chair facing the front kind of thing. Um, but our, our libraries, our homes, our outdoors spaces, our eco um, areas are all spaces in which learning can happen. And of course, we've got the virtuality of that now too, because we can connect those spaces, which takes me to the fourth area, which is actually leveraging digital and understanding that, that digital is not just a little tack on add on, Digital is actually something that's enabling a huge amount of things to happen. It's a force for good, but it's also a force for evil. And so we have to understand and make sure that's a part of what we are doing in, in a, this revised view of an education system. There's, there's a very fulsome sort of response, but if we're not looking holistically, then we're going to fall at the hurdle. And that's, that's my big concern with a lot of these um, a lot of these very well-intentioned and, in fact, well-designed and often quite successful little programs, if they aren't going to expand out to a much fuller system view on where they sit within the ecosystem, that's all we end up with. We just end up with a lot of little flowers blooming. Um, Iona Halstead, the Secretary of Education, said at the start of the pandemic when she was being asked about the equity of, of um the digital education, she said that the a pandemic doesn't cause inequities, it reveals them, and, and I think people are now adding exacerbates them. What does that, that digital, what does that force for good and force for evil mean? Yeah, so there's two parts to that, I think. Um, I, I've written quite a lot about this in my blog and other and the papers I actually did for Iona. Um, and, and used exactly that language. We saw in an analysis that the, it exposed inequity in ways that we hadn't really thought about in the past. And so a really practical way of understanding that is we've had a big move in New Zealand to equip schools with ultra-fast broadband, to equip schools with, um, or encourage schools to equip themselves with technology and one-on-one -on -one devices, all this sort of thing. But no one really has thought, apart from just a handful of schools, no one's really been giving thought to so how does this look in the in the learner's home environment and the other places they might go, you know? So we, our thinking has been industrialized. It's been thinking about what we do in this place called a school. And so pandemic came across and a lot of assumptions were made. Oh, well, kids will be able to continue to, lear to learn online at home. And we suddenly realized, oh, there are many thousands of households who haven't got access to the internet, that don't have access to a device. Or if they do, there's only one device, but three kids. This sort of thing. Now, so the the whole idea of access uh, and so forth is is one part of that. But the other part of that is, of course, what's referred to um, uh, by United Nations and OECD as the the second digital divide. So the first one sort of being around access, but the one that they are really focusing on now and saying is a bigger concern is actually kind of the the gap between the ears divide. And I'm not saying that to be too, too um, disparaging, but just it's what it's the, the level of understanding and skill set that uh, is associated with being truly digitally fluent, where you're living in a digital world and can engage digitally in a way 
that uh, means not only are you making the best and most appropriate use of the tools and the, the connections and the opportunities, but you're also doing those things that keep you safe. So you have the critical awareness to know when you are being spammed or being attacked. You have the ability to make sure that your use of the device and the configuration of the, the internet is has protections in it uh, and you're subscribing to things or, or and your behavior is consistent in ways that keeps you safe so that these, these enormous kind of attacks that are happening aren't going to affect you. So I think it's a crude way of saying it. we've got a first and a second way of understanding the digital divide that has really been exposed here. I need to squeeze in the second of your music choices. Let's have a Dave Dobbin. And we'll have No My Ra. Kete aroha au ki a kwe E tano a tiene e tau Kore mai kwe ki konei Katoro te ringa ki
sprite of the forest of Orokudui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi arohanui, kia koutou, kotahuaho. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day. Who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique and here making things better. Thank you. Now I know for us all over the last more than a year it has been such a tricky time for us all and we've had to be learning so much we've had to be helping each other so much we've had to be constantly reaffirming and reassuring ourselves and all of those around us that we will get through this difficult time and as much as possible it's so important that we are kind to ourselves and others as we negotiate all these new understandings and realities that are coming into being. I know for me that being part of this show has been an enormous help and I'm so grateful to Sam and the whole Blowing Bubbles team for having me and for all of you being part of the show and allowing the space to share and create together. I love us as a species, I think we're so fascinating and we are so creative innately, innately nurturing, innately communal. We are here as a, as a result of this co-evolution and this communality and so having the opportunity to really celebrate this as part of this show has been a wonderful comfort to me. Thank you. Interestingly, at this time in my life, I'm in the process of farewelling many objects back up north to the whānau of Harvey Penfold. And of course, it's so interesting when we do have an attachment to physical objects how we can recalibrate and reconfigure our perceptions to understand that they are just objects, they are just stuff that as a species we have created. And in fact, our emotional core and our emotional center lives within. And we see ourselves constantly surrounded by our creations and the creations of other members of our species. And when we can allow the emotion that we have ascribed to them the emotional meaning that we have ascribed to them to to shift and change. This is such a freeing and liberating experience. As a species, of course, also our consciousness loves symbols and symbolic acts, ritual acts. So the act of releasing objects that have previously been meaningful back to the universe, back to their original owners to live on in another way is a very powerful symbolic act and of course, at all times, it's so important that we do what we can to support ourselves, to make a life that honours us and reflects who we are, who we hope to grow to be. So freeing up our, our living space from anything that doesn't reflect that and sharing these treasures with others who can appreciate them is a highly rewarding experience. So I really hope for you, whatever cycles are coming to an end and beginning anew in your life, you can find ways to celebrate this. And I really hope for you that your living space is very beautiful and comfortable and reflects who you are. And as a reminder to you every day, all you have achieved 
All you are contributing and sharing and all the exciting adventures that await you. As I speak to you looking out my window, the beautiful cabbage trees dancing in the wind and thinking again how lucky we are to be here in Aotearoa, New Zealand together, surrounded by lush life that has evolved here for millions of years. And of course, remembering that we are connected to all this life, every living thing. We share that genetic lineage, we share that that learning of having been here and survived here for so long. So I hope you can enjoy those connections today also. And I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Derek Wenmuth. Derek, you talked about your blog there, Future Makers, and you established core education before that. This is a this is a long held passion about is it, is it about transformation? Is is it about a positive view of creating futures? What what's what, what's behind it? Uh, it's both of those things, Sam. Really, it is, it is about transformation because I um, at heart believe that our current system is beyond us. It's used by, um, but it is definitely about doing that with a uh, a positive and hopeful view of what that future involves. Um, and in fact, that word hope is kind of central to a lot of conversations I've been having just recently. Uh, and I think if we, if we are to encourage our, our students, and I do this with my own grandkids, there's no point um, overemphasizing the despair and the despondency, and, and you don't have to look far to see that. I mean, if you follow the science, we're in for a pretty tough time ahead in, at all levels. But uh, there is hope if you believe in the centrality of human dignity and the centrality of, of what it means to be human. Um, and so that starts in, in schools in that reconceptualizing of the purpose and placing learners at the center. It doesn't just make them the objects of who we're delivering to. It makes them the people in whom we are investing our time, our energy and our hope so that their self-belief, their self-confidence, their self-awareness and their ability then to relate to others and combine with others to achieve the outcomes that they they seek and, and are so necessary for our planet can actually happen. And there, there are some great res- examples of this happening through human history. So, um, yeah, I think hope would wrote right up there in the words that I would uh, use to describe, I guess, what motivates me. So what lessons do you think we can take from the pandemic and the pandemic response for those bigger sorts of questions, the climate change, biodiversity, social justice? And how do we express that or how how do we engage kids in that, the positive side of that? Well, I think um, oh, it's almost pause for thought for a good answer to that, because I think part of the response is what I've talked about there. We've, we've got to reframe our approach to education and get away from the transmissive. So the, the simple answer to part of your question is, is that we don't have the textbook to guide our students on this. So that's, and that sounds a bit simplistic, but we've actually, we've got to let go of the idea that we have the answers or that we know the answers or that we can even imagine the answers. This is something that we have to co-construct, right? So that takes us to the second thing. If we have to co-construct it, we have to involve many more people than just the people who assemble each day in a classroom, which brings us to the ecosystem idea. We have to be intentionally making connections with a whole lot of people in our own communities and beyond 
which is where the leveraging digital and so forth becomes quite useful. And then if we're to do that successfully, we have to get past our almost um, exclusive focus on the academic hierarchies of subjects and things and focus along, it's not that they're unimportant, they are important vehicles and we need to have them there, but we have to give at least equal status to the competencies that people need to develop to enable them to get there. And although we've had a competency-based curriculum in New Zealand now for you know, 20 years, just about, we, we're still a long way from giving those things the priority uh, that they should. And so if you think about the things that people are talking about right now, uh, when we talk about things like the fake news and misinformation and disinformation, um, the ability to be critical, the ability to think uh, at a level that means that we um, move beyond the initial uh, impression we have to verify and validate arguments, the ability to express ourselves coherently and cogently in written form, in verbal form, uh, in, in to speak to audiences that we may otherwise never have had a chance to do, to work intergenerationally on those things. These are all skills and competencies and capabilities that we've kind of paid lip service to, and we've sort of once a year had the speech competitions in school, or we've had Grandfather's Day when they come and just, we've done these things. It's a lived reality day by day by day, and so those competencies, those skills, uh, are absolutely important. And if I might add one thing, I think um, part of that new education narrative that we're going to have to move beyond is the is the focus on on um, a fundamentally economistic view of education. That you know, education post-industrial, the emphasis was on the economy. It was growing people with minds and abilities to participate in the factories. And that's traveled through now. We were, if you follow the idea, you know, nations like education, the, the, the dominant narrative politically is that education will make us prosperous because we'll get a greater GDP. You know, that, that and education we tell our kids is the route to best jobs. If you just go to school, you can get a better job. And when we think about inequity and poverty, we say education's the answer because it'll lift you out of poverty. And so the success is about getting better qualifications and more learning that's validated in that way. And that in the best qualifications are going to be those ones in the subjects that matter, like maths and science and so forth. And getting to university is going to be the key indicator of that. So that's the route. There's our narrative that we've got currently. Right? That's going to have to change because we're at the point in human history that I believe our current economic model is, is under collapse. So alongside climate change and all these other things, that idea that, that somehow getting a good job and earning a living and saving towards retirement in the way that we've thought about it in the past is just not going to be sustainable. And there's, there's an issue that we have to think of. And education is, is a critical role to play in that because, as I say, our current narrative contributes to that in such significant ways. So Pink Floyd were, were right? Pretty much. <laughs> yep. You, well, you, you, you think about, I mean, you're involved in a tertiary organisation and you look at what's happening across New Zealand in the university sector at the moment, but particularly with the polytechs, you know, part of the, the, the this reorganisation of polytechs is, is a result of, um, uh, well, many things, but among them is the, the 
uh, increasing number of people who are getting really disillusioned with with what uh, the return on their investment, the return on their time and achieving a higher education qualification is giving them. Right? And we've got to sit down and examine this. It's not about making higher education best better or more accessible, it's actually saying, well, is this actually the, the thing that we need to be trying to pump all of our people through? Uh, what is the future that, that we can best prepare them for? The parents might struggle with, um, with us not having the answers, but are the kids okay? Is there a way of teaching people about the... The, the fact that they're going into that VUCA world of the, the volatile, uncertain, uh, complex and ambiguous, that still gives people that, you know, I think we talked before about having the the safety of the place to learn where that's a comfortable place. How can we teach a VUCA world comfortably? Yeah, well, there's, there's one of great, the great paradoxes, isn't it, of our age, Um and I, I, the VUCA stuff is, is something I talk about regularly because it's, it is a, the, probably the best description of our current world, right? Uh, and the, the, I think back to the first part of your question then, the way that we get there is to stop just thinking about, well, we're dealing with the kids and the parents over there may have a problem, but we have to bring them with us. This has to be a whole of community, really intentionally designed approach and strategy that, that takes them with us. And we are, in schools at the moment, you know, particularly seniors level, we're under the pump. Many teachers feel under the pump because they have to cover the curriculum. They've got to cover all the stuff and get these unit standards done and all this sort of thing, which, of course, is a load of crap. But it's, uh, it is the pressure that people feel because – and, and I, I sound a bit you know, cavalier in saying that, but that's actually not the way the, 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 the system was thought of or imagined or designed when we brought in, for instance, achievement standards with NCA. And there are just a handful of schools that have really broken that mould and are pursuing it, but they get vilified often because of schools whose communities still have, you know, the parents who want that traditional subject sort of oriented achievement uh, outcome based approach. And, and at the end of the day, it's about taking the community, the parents, everyone with you and, um, and building building that narrative around the case for change, the, the need to make the world a better place. And we can't do it without taking the community, our kids with us and focusing on the things that matter. I have some questions to end the show with and not very much time, so we shall have to rattle through them. Oh. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? <laughs> I, I guess... Um, I referred before to the work I'm doing with Michael Fullan and the New Pedagogies for Deep Learning program. I think um, I'm searching my mind for, for examples of success because there are a whole lot of different ones, but that, that one in particular is outstandingly successful in my view because of the way that it's giving insights into how we can change at a whole of system level. So I've got, I've got some wonderful stories I could talk about, huge successes, at an individual student level, you know, those wonderful heart-wrenching stories, or for teachers who have had transformation or even classes. Um, and they inspire me, keep me going. But in terms of the MPDL program, um, bringing whole schools on to a program that aligns them in terms of a common language and a shared set of values and a shared set of perspectives that can be applied right across the world 
So we've got classes in Uruguay and, and Finland, as well as Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. These sorts of, um, so it's not constraining, it's not devoid of context, but we're seeing systems changed and systems transformed to give students and their communities hope. That would be probably my, my big up at the moment, something I'm excited about. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you're most definitely in that team. What's your superpower? Uh, I would like to think my superpower is is that I am a future-focused thinker and that through that I can empower others. I'm, um, I, I need people around me. I'm pretty useless on my own, um, and my greatest achievements are when I'm in, in a team and there are other people who are, who are there going. But I think my, my superpower in that team is definitely I'm coming to realise the fact that that I bring a perspective about the future that's an unsettling kind of always keeping it moving forward. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Uh, in a mild manner way, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Oh, look, I have a fundamental belief in, in the, the, good, the goodness of humanity and a hopeful view that we were we were created to be people who care for each other who care for our planet and that there's a there's a purpose in life that's beyond just getting a good job and retiring with um, the opportunity to travel the world and go on cruises and um, and I guess I'm particularly enamored with the responsibility that brings to think long to to be you know thinking about seven generations out that it doesn't all have to be achieved in my lifetime but what's it going to be like for my kids their kids and their kids mm. so what challenge or opportunity are you looking forward to in the next year or so oh, i think um there's a there's an immediate challenge that that i'm getting excited about uh, as a result of the approaches from some schools i've had recently about how we might work at a local level in schools or clusters to actually uh, design intentionally design an approach to learning that isn't going to de- be dependent on kids attending school face to face every day. I'm not. That's not meaning that they won't. Uh, that's still very much part of the picture. But it's looking at all the what ifs. What if we have to close for a week? What if we have to close for a month? What if there are parts of our our community who can't come to school because of their vaccine hesitancy? These sorts of things. I think. That's a practical kind of set of problems which give us an opportunity to look at a really transfigured and transformed education approach. Good luck with that. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Oh, look, I think never give up, really. It's uh, if there, there's, um, you know, be hopeful be, be, and be kind. I think um, there's three key tenets of being agentic, which to me is is central to all this. One is taking responsibility for yourself, doing stuff that looks after you, that determines who you are, how important it is that you can give expression to your ideas, all that sort of thing. The second one is being responsible to others, because if you just look after self, we lead down the road of hedonism. If you're looking after others, you're embracing them in that journey forward. The third thing is being responsible for the environment we share. We can't continue on just being extractive and exploitative of the environment, not giving a toss in order to satisfy our own kind of human needs and desires. If we can get there, we're doing pretty well. Thank you for that. Mawira. 
Derek, my 11-year-old Jack, oh, who turns 12 tomorrow, he was listening to this interview and he said, I wish that man could come and teach at our school. And I can see why he would think that. Um, the, the language that you're using is a language that I'm hearing more and more from our children at the moment, which makes me really excited that maybe the solutions that I've been hoping for, maybe they're there in our kids that there are, there are enough people like you who are who are sharing this message and that it's starting to rub off and maybe the change can happen. And that gives me some real hopefulness. Thank you very much for sharing with us today and for all the work that you're doing across our education community. We appreciate you. Kia ora kora, matewa. Thank you, Mawera. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Jack. We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control No dark sarcasm in the classroom Teach to leave them kids alone listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is Pink Floyd, of course. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, with Mawera Karatai in Fakatane, and we have been joined from Lower Hutt by Derek Wenmuth. You can find more of his thoughts on his blog, Future Makers. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.